The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Our scripture this morning is Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of God for the people of God. Well, happy third Sunday of Advent to you. I want to remind you, I always think it's important for us to remember why we're here, and especially in this season. Uh, we're here because what we just professed a few minutes ago uh, is true, that the eternal Son of God took on flesh and entered into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and if that actually happened in space and time and history, that's the most life-changing, world-changing thing we could possibly be talking about or thinking about. And that's what Christians believe, is it? God has entered into human history, and that's what we celebrate at this time of year. It's what we sing about. It's what we're talking about. It's what we're praying about and professing as we profess our faith. I don't know about you, but one of my favorite things about the Advent season is the songs that we get to sing. There's something about having songs that are sort of only pulled out at one season in the year, and then the rest of the year, like, we don't sing Joy to the World in April usually, you know, or O Come Emmanuel in September. It's... It's like in Advent that we pull out these songs. And so there's something about having a, a set of songs in the church that sort of we particularly lean into and sing together in this season of the year that's just, I think, really powerful. 
Uh, some of you guys were probably here for the hymn sing last Sunday night. That was pretty fun. Uh, we got to sing about a dozen different hymns, including the Friendly Beast, which is my favorite. It's where you all get to make animal noises in church. It's like the only time we all do that together. So that was fun. Um, and then even this morning, you know, singing songs like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel that are just particular to um, the incarnation and to, to reminding us what it is we're celebrating at this season of the church and of our uh, life together in worship. What's interesting as we think about that is that uh, the book of Philippians, which we've been studying together all fall and which we're coming to the end of this morning, the book of Philippians is really organized and written around a song. In the middle of chapter two, there's that section that Aaron preached on a few months ago where it talks about Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. That little section is what's called the Christ hymn, and it's probably one of the earliest songs Christians ever sang together. Like if you ask, like, what's the first song that was ever written at Advent, or what's the earliest song our people have sung together thousands of years ago? It, it very well might be that little section in the heart of Philippians. And so really, the whole book being built around that little hymn is a reminder to us that what the book is calling us to and what the scriptures are calling us to and what God is calling us to is to orient our whole life around Jesus Christ. That if God has really come into human history, then what we ought to be doing is orienting our lives around that reality, understanding what does it mean for us to know Christ, to live our lives for Christ, to believe in Christ, to rest in Christ, and to orient our lives around the work of his kingdom. And so that's sort of what the book of Philippians exists to call us to. And it, it puts that hymn about Christ right in the middle, and then it puts a bunch of other truth around that, sort of inviting us to think about what, what would it mean for us to live life that way? So in the journey of Christian discipleship, there are sort of two movements. You might think of it as coming to Christ and then conforming to the way of Christ. Like the first movement in discipleship is to come in faith to Jesus. When Jesus, in his earthly ministry, calls his disciples, he says, come and follow me. And so the first movement is coming to Jesus in repentance and faith. In other words, hearing the message of who he is and what he's done and responding to that in faith and coming to him in surrender, giving our lives to him, receiving his forgiveness and grace and deciding this is what I'm going to give my life to. This is the person I'm going to build my life around. So there's this reality of coming to Christ. But then there's this second movement of sort of conforming all of our lives to the way of Christ, right? Because most of us have done things for a long time not the way Jesus would do them. And so when we come to Christ, we sort of have to rethink our lives. We have to sort of rethink, man, what am I giving myself to? And what habits and patterns have I built in life? What would it mean for me to like orient my entire existence around Jesus? And that is ongoing work and it's work that takes intentionality. And so you've seen all this language in Philippians about, you know, have this mind among yourselves and think this way. The, the exhortation is like, think this out. What would it mean for us to live life the way Jesus wants us to live it. And that's why certain parts of Philippians have been very practical. So you have this exalted sections of doctrine reminding us of who God in Jesus is. And then there's these very practical sections that remind us of like, all right, 
Live this way. The passage Pastor Dusty preached on last week. Think on these things. Set your mind in this direction. This is going to take intentionality and focus and purpose. And as we seek to bring our lives into conformity with the way of Jesus, we need examples to follow. We need people we can pattern our lives after. We need people we can say, kind of do it like that person. And you saw a few, a few weeks ago, Paul says, be imitators of me, follow me, follow my example. But not only do we need apostles, we just need human beings, other Christians. I guess apostles are human beings, so not that they're not that. But in addition to apostles, which are human beings, other people, other Christians, we can pattern our lives after. We, we need examples. And my wife, Leah, and I got married young. We had kids young. And so we were overwhelmed as young parents and unsure of really how to do the whole parenting, how to raise kids in the ways of the Lord. And in our first church in Austin, Texas, there was this couple named Ray and Diana. They lived just up the block from us. And their kids were all teenagers. Their kids were further on in life than ours were. And they just seemed like good human beings. Like they had good character and they were socially easy to connect with. And they all had their own relationships with Christ that they were building. And so we were like, man, these people, that seems like an example, a pattern we could follow. And Ray and Diana taught a little class for some young parents in our church on parenting using this book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, which I think to this day is still the best book on Christian parenting that exists. And it was real practical. It was like, hey, here's how to do things the Bible tells you to do, right? So, you know, Ray and Diana would say things like, hey, you need to discipline your kids when they disobey. And here's how to do that. Let's talk about what that looks like. Or, hey, you need to train your kids to be able to, you know, respect authority and sit quietly without being a distraction. Here's how to do that. We needed examples to follow. Author J.R. Moringer wrote a memoir a few years back called The Tender Bar. And it's his story of growing up without a dad. And it focuses on how in the absence of his own father, he learned manhood from his uncle Charlie and from watching a bunch of men down at the bar where his uncle Charlie worked. Now, not all those men, as you can imagine, were great role models in every respect. But his point is that in the aggregate, as a community, they gave him a picture of kind of what it looked like to be a man. And in the book, he writes this, to be a man, a boy must see a man. A boy needs an example to follow. He needs someone to look to and sort of pattern his life after. And that's not just true for boys. It's true for every human being. It's true for every Christian. As we seek to follow Jesus, we need examples. And so this morning, as we come to the end of the book of Philippians, we get two examples to follow. We first of all get to see Paul's example of contentment, and second, the Philippian church's example of generosity. So we're going to close our time in Philippians by looking at these two examples. If you have a Bible, then let's open it to Philippians chapter 4. If you're using one of the Bibles that are under your seat, you'll find that on page 923. And I want to look first of all at the paragraph that begins in Philippians 4 and verse 10. Again, the Apostle Paul is writing here. You're going to see him using first-person language. Here's what he writes. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. 
Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I want you to notice the repetition of the phrase, I have learned. In other words, contentment does not come naturally. It must be learned. And the great paradox of life is whatever you think will make you content, won't. And somehow we all know that. It's an easy thing to say and nod at, but somehow we also all don't really believe that. Because all of us have things out there that, we're, that we think, that will finally make me content. It's one of the greatest struggles of our lives, is that there's something out there somewhere that will make us content. This relationship, if I had it, would make me content. This job, if I had it, would make me content. Financial security, if I could achieve it, would make me content. Or this achievement or title or accolade would make me content. This change in my situation would make me content. That's how we all tend to think. I mean, I can look back on my own life and just like witness the goalposts moving. Can't you? Like I can look back and think like when I was a student, I was like, man, finally when I graduate from college, that's when I'll be content. And then I was like, when I get married. And then it was when I graduate from seminary or when I plant a church or when the church finally has a building or at, right, the goalposts just keep moving. Whatever you think will make you content won't. It's interesting if you think about it, possibly discontentment was the original temptation. Like think about the story the Bible tells us. Adam and Eve are in this garden paradise. They have everything they need. They're fully provided for and they're living in perfect relational harmony with one another, with God and with God's creation. Like they're living the life all of us have been trying to get back to ever since. And yet in the midst of that, the serpent says, did God really say? And what he tempts them with is, God knows when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. The serpent is sowing the seeds of discontentment. He's saying, have you ever thought about that maybe there's something else you need that you don't have? And ever since then, humanity has been defined by our discontentment. We've been chasing contentment. So let me ask you to think about this question for you. Where, as you sit here this morning, where is the discontentment in your life? Where is the discontentment in your life? Look again at verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need for, catch this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. The basic lie all of us believe is that contentment is really about our circumstances. That if we had a different situation, then we'd be content. Paul is telling you very straightforwardly, contentment is not about your situation in any and every circumstance, he writes, 
I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And what's the secret? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Christ, fellowship with Christ, communion with Christ, that's the secret. Now, let's be honest, Philippians 4.13 is everybody's favorite out-of-context verse, right? <laughs> if we could just pick this up out of its context, disconnect it and just, you know, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, that makes a great bumper sticker. It makes a great t-shirt. If you're an athletic coach, it makes a great motivational speech. Full disclosure, I had Philippians 4.13 inside my face mask as a high school football player. I might not be the only one who's ever done that as an athlete. I've seen people write it on their shoes. I was a very mediocre, below average high school football player at Miller North High School back in the day. And um, I just felt, you know, I needed a little motivation every day. Like, what's gonna, why would I get up again and go out and submit myself to this grind? Answer, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. One of the drills every football team that exists at any level does every practice is called the Oklahoma drill. If you've played football, you know it. The drill looks like this. One person right here with a football, five yards away, another player without the football, either pads or a line of players on either side. Coach blows the whistle. Those two players run at each other. One person wins, one person loses. It's a great drill. It teaches running, it teaches tackling, it teaches balance, it, teach, it teaches all kinds of things. This is why coaches love it. I didn't really love the Oklahoma drill much. Um, there were some times I could tolerate it, but there were particular people, in fact, I just hated running the Oklahoma drill against. Uh, one of them is here today, Jeff, Jeff Elwood. You didn't know I was going to talk about you in the sermon. I'm sorry to do that to you. So Jeff was a defensive back um, who was faster, stronger, a better hitter in every way, just a better athlete. And he just had an amazingly low center of gravity and there was just no way ever in the Oklahoma drill that you were gonna hit harder than Jeff. And so, you know, coach would line Jeff up here, line me up here, didn't matter if I had the ball or Jeff had the ball, I just knew I'm reading my face mask and saying, I, <laughs> I can run this drill through Christ who strengthens me. And then the whistle would blow, we would run at each other, I would be looking up at the sky asking, I don't even think the Bible is true. <laughs> I don't even think there is a God. <laughs> Philippians 4.13, though it can be used in a lot of ways, and we've probably all done this, this does not mean, hey, whatever you set your mind to, you can do it as long as you have Jesus. What it does mean is that in every situation, the secret to contentment, the one thing that can help you be content in every circumstance is the indwelling presence of Christ. Christ who strengthens me. That's the secret to contentment. You're not going to find contentment in your work. You're not going to find it in the relationship you wish you had. You're not going to find it in the achievement that's still out in front of you. You're not going to find it in the family you wish you have or wish you had. The secret to contentment is fellowship with God in Christ. And here's the beautiful thing. Remember, Paul's speaking in the first person here. He says, I have learned in every situation to be content. And here's the good news for you. 
if Paul the apostle had to learn this, then we have to learn it too. Like, like no one wakes up and just becomes content. If he has experienced Christ strengthening him to be content in every situation, then the good news is that's possible for you and me too. Like that really is possible for us to know and experience the kind of friendship and fellowship with Jesus that really actually can make us content in any and every situation, in abundance and in need. So that's the first example we get here is Paul's own example of contentment in Christ. The second example in this text is the Philippian church's example of generosity, verses 14 through 20. The context here, as you'll see, is Paul's talking about his work as a missionary and the church's support of him financially in that work. He says, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again, once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul was sent out to start new churches and proclaim the gospel, and the Philippian church shared in the work by giving to support Paul in his ministry. And I want you to notice the three things he commends them for in their example of generosity. He points out that they were early to give. Verse 15, in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. He's saying, hey, you're an exemplary church because you were, you were the first ones to to jump in and help. You were early to give. You were one of the first churches to be a partner in this work of the gospel. Second, he commends them because they were eager to give. Verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. They were eager to continue to support the work. And finally, he points out they were exuberant in their giving. Verse 18, I have received full payment and more I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Notice the language of well supplied. He said, hey, I have everything I need. You guys have been generous, and I've got everything I need. Thank you. This is a, a church that's an example, a model of the kind of generosity that we ought to have. And I want you to know, by the way, Quarmdale Church, that you guys have a similar reputation. You are known as a generous church. Um, you probably know this because we pray for them regularly on Sundays, but we are funding together 15 different church planting endeavors around the world, from Tennessee to Tokyo. And just this past week, I heard from four of the leaders of some of those church planting endeavors. I heard from Pastor Femi in Lagos, Pastor Johan in Pretoria, South Africa, Sujith in Mumbai, and Tim over in Collins, Iowa, and all of them said, hey, will you thank the people of Cormodale for their generosity? Like, we are well supplied. You guys have been generous, and we're grateful. 
So I want you to know that. I get to hear those things because those guys send me emails. But I want you to know you are well-loved and you are known as a generous people. But the danger, of course, is in a church this large and this diverse, the danger is that we together can be generous without each one of us individually being generous, right? Like we can get credit for things that actually we're not personally participating in. So I wanna invite you this morning to evaluate your generosity against the example of this Philippian church. Are you personally early to give? In other words, is, is giving to the Lord and to his work the first thing you do when you get your paycheck? Or does God kind of get the leftovers? Second, are you eager to give? Are you excited? Are you, do you enjoy getting to give to God's work? And third, are you exuberant in your giving? Are you generous and exuberant in how you give? One of the disciplines that, um, that we've tried in our household over the years is uh, just to try to give more each year than we did the year before. And the reason I like having that discipline is just because it sort of forces me every year to go like, okay, to take stock of my charitable giving in the year before and to say, can I do a little more this year? Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes like, well, I'm not sure if we can. But that's the goal. I was striving to sort of continue to move forward and be more generous each year than the year before. Maybe that's a good practice for you. Either way, I want you to evaluate your personal generosity. I want you to notice a couple of things in this passage that are really provocative and really interesting. First of all, look at what Paul says in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. See, he's not after the gift. He's after the good that giving does in the soul of the giver. Like it does something in your heart when you give to the work of God. It deepens your worship. It deepens your sense of ownership of the mission of God. It even deepens your contentment because you realize, oh, I really can be content with less because I'm giving to the Lord. And he mentions here the fruit that increases to your credit. Here's the reality. Someday in the new heavens and the new earth, you're going to meet Christians from Tokyo and from Lagos and from Pretoria who came to know Christ in part because of your giving. And that's to your credit. Sometimes Christians get weird about the idea of receiving credit for our good works or for our generosity. Like we, we rightly, because we are a church that believes in grace, we don't like credit for things. And so we want to say, no, it's all God. Of course. At like your whole life is grace. The fact that you are breathing right now is all God. So at the most basic level, yes, everything we have and everything we do is a gift of God. But do you know how God does his work in the world? He does it through human beings. Like here's one human apostle who's a church planning missionary writing to a bunch of other people in another city and saying, hey, because of you, I'm well supplied. That's how God gets his work done in the world. There are churches right now that exist that wouldn't exist without your generosity and people are gonna hear the gospel and come to Jesus through those churches and that's to your credit. 
In fact, like you're sitting here, think about this. You're sitting here right now experiencing the ministry of the gospel in a local church community and a lot of the work to build what you're enjoying right now was done by people who were here a decade and a half ago who moved on to Milwaukee or Orlando or who knows where. They're not part of this church anymore, but their giving and their sacrifice helped make possible what you experience. And the same is true for you. The things you give and invest now are gonna bear fruit in the future and that's all to your credit. Paul says, that's real. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. You are doing meaningful things that really do advance the work of God and that wouldn't happen apart from your generosity. And then look at verse 19. This is a promise now, so I want you to hear this. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's a promise from God to you, promising you that you can't outgive God. Like if you're generous, you're not going to run out. Because God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, there's, there's two basic ways to live in life and two basic ways to live as a Christian, right? You can live with a mindset of scarcity that says, like, I don't know if I'm going to have everything I need, and so I sort of need to store it away and hoard it and be selfish with it. Or you can live with a mindset of abundance that says, you know what? Everything I have is to honor the Lord with, and so I want to be as generous as I can. And what Paul is saying is, those who understand the riches of God, those who understand how much God has to give to his people, always live with a mindset of abundance because they're never afraid that God's not going to show up and meet their needs. Like God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And so let's take God at his word. Let's be the kind of people who live with an abundant generosity because we actually believe in the riches of God's glory in Christ Jesus and that as our good father, he's gonna provide what we need. So we have an example of contentment in the Apostle Paul. We have an example of generosity in the Philippian church. And I love that it's a communal example so we can see what a church looks like and what kind of commendation it receives as it's generous and participates in God's work. And then we come to these final greetings, verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I want you to notice especially the call out of the saints that are in Caesar's household. Like if you're a Christian living in the first century in the Roman colony of Philippi, I mean, if you know a little bit about your Roman history, you know that like as the Caesars changed, so did your fortunes. Some of the Caesars were friendly toward the church. Some were very persecuting toward the church. What he's reminding is like, hey, actually, even in Caesar's old household, among the Praetorian Guard, those who serve in the government, guess what? There's, there's people coming to Christ in that world. And so they're sending their greetings to you. Like it's a good reminder that God's kingdom is going forward, even in places that feel to you like, oh man, I, I don't know if there's any Christians there. The good news that the gospel moves forward. The disciples of Jesus are in every segment of society, in every place, in every corner of the globe, in every sort of subculture in our city, 
The gospel is moving forward. And I want you to notice the note the book ends on. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The book ends with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and this blessing. May that grace be with your spirit. Paul is an example of contentment. The Philippians are an example of generosity. But what's really happening in their lives is that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is working on them and working through them. Yes, they are exemplary, and the reason they are exemplary is because of the work of God's grace in their lives. Because the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is changing them. I mean, think about this. Who's the most content person in the universe? It's God, isn't it? God is the one who has no need. He has no lack. There's nothing you can give him that he doesn't already have. Acts 17, 25. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. God's the most content being in the universe. Likewise, who's the most generous person in the universe? Well, God is. He's the creator that gives us every good thing that we possibly enjoy. Every good and perfect gift is from above. James reminds us. So see, what's happening is God is making Paul more content and God is making the Philippians more generous by making them more like himself. That's how this works. The more like God you become, the more content you are and the more generous you are. And that's what the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ does. It changes us. The gospel is not a new set of rules for you to follow. It's not a new prescription for you to obey. It's the presence of God changing you. In yourself, left to your own plans, you'll probably never be as content as Paul. You'll probably never be as generous as the Philippians. But when the God who is totally content, the God who needs nothing, when that God dwells within you by his Holy Spirit, now his contentment becomes yours. When the God who is the giver of all good gifts, the God who gives every good thing for us to enjoy, when that God dwells in you by his Holy Spirit, now he begins to make you generous like him. That's what the gospel gives us and that's how the gospel changes us. It doesn't just give us an example to follow but it gives us a God who draws us into fellowship with himself, who wants to change us not by a better prescription of how to live, but by fellowship with himself, by coming and dwelling in us and transforming us from the inside out so that our character looks like his character so that we start to take on the gracious, generous disposition that he has. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what Jesus Christ is doing in and among his people. And that's why this book ends by saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You know what's the best thing that could possibly happen to you? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ being with your spirit. You being more caught up in and more changed by and more transformed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what will change you. And so I want you to notice that Paul has said both, hey, I'm content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
This church has been generous. Thank you for your generosity. So he does hold up examples. He gives us very practical things to do. But then underneath and grounding that practical exhortation, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Like that's what really animates and fuels all of this, is grace. So this Advent season, friends, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May you be content in any and every circumstance. And may God supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the picture you give us in this text of contentment and of generosity. Thanks that we can learn contentment by finding the secret of contentment in Christ. And thank you that like this church was generous, you invite us to live lives of generosity. And thanks that you give us these examples, not so that we can do better in our own strength, but so that we can have a picture of what it looks like for your grace to continue to change us and for you to make us more like yourself. So this morning, we want to give ourselves over to you. We want to open ourselves up to your gracious work. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ meet us even now as we respond to your word in singing, as we come to your table and feast on bread and wine representing your body and blood. Would you allow your grace to move more deeply in our lives and transform us more fully into your image? We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.